Let's pray. Uh, Father God in heaven, uh, thank you. Uh, season's turn, finally. Uh, but you uh, renew your creation in all of its marvelous ways. And you bring death so that you can bring new life. Father, it's a reminder. We are dead. Sometimes we need you to make that abundantly clear to us. Make our deaths abundantly clear to us that you might bring forth new life in us. Make us dead to our sin. And may we be the people who put sin to death in our flesh by your Spirit day by day that we might live new life to you in Christ in righteousness. Father in heaven, um, we know we are not alone in this war, in this battle. We lift up this morning to you, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Switzerland. We pray, Father, for that nation in particular this morning because we know that the trappings of this world, much like the trappings here uh, in America, the wealth and the comfort and the convenience of modern life have stolen and sapped them of spiritual vigor and have lost sight of a heritage of faith that was once so prevalent in that land. And now secularism and a lack of gospel truth is the norm there. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who still stand on these ancient truths, that they would be bold in their faith, that they would not be discouraged by their small numbers today on this Lord's Day. But we pray, Father, for a revival to break out there, that their faithfulness would lead to their speaking, and that their speaking would lead to hearing, and that their the hearing of the Swiss would lead to the salvation of many souls and to a reinvigoration of your church. New life brought there. New congregations planted. Old buildings of empty pews filled. And old buildings where messages of good tidings with no hope preached Sunday after Sunday, would suddenly be filled with messages of the hope that is in your gospel alone. We pray, Father, that that would be our heart as well, and that our faith would not merely rest in these chairs on Sunday morning, but would carry out from us on Monday, to our places of work, to our neighborhoods, to the places where we watch the game today, and that Jesus would always be right on the tip of our tongue and, and right on the edge of our lips, that we might make him known in all of his gloriousness. that a dying world so much in need of hope, here even in Cleveland, would come to know hope 
and find it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're still in chapter 14. We'll still be in 14 a little bit next week. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 14 as we continue to make our way through this book. Uh, 24 through 46 this morning. Turn, click, swipe, tap. Must be the men's retreat. I'm having trouble flipping pages. We did sleep a little bit. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came into the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives and saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff, 
that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Do our words matter? On uh, December 4th, 1941, Frank Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, made a statement of assurance that despite rumblings in the Pacific, whatever happens, the U.S. Navy is not going to be caught napping, he committed. Three days later, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in an effort to destroy our Pacific fleet and ease their ability to expand their territorial conquests in the Philippines. In fact, no doubt many sailors were quite literally sleeping when hundreds of Japanese planes began their attack at 7.48 a.m. local time. Those words didn't age well, not even a week and a half, not even a half a week. If they had any effect at all, it was only to unnecessarily make American sailors less vigilant that morning. A week later, Secretary Knox visited Pearl Harbor and then later gave a press conference in Los Angeles where he claimed that some of the most effective fifth-column work of the entire war was done in Hawaii, apparently implicating Japanese-Americans in assisting with the attack. There was, of course, no evidence that Japanese-Americans assisted with the attack, but those words had further consequences and Knox advocated strongly both for the internment of Japanese Americans during the war and for preventing them from serving in the Navy. We may never know if those words were just hasty or just misguided, but they mattered. In our passage this morning, we see another example of the devastating consequences of careless words on the lips of leaders. The passage teaches us that Morally dense leaders can threaten God's blessings. Morally dense leaders can threaten God's blessings. And we're going to explore that idea through three thefts that are caused by careless words in this passage. Three thefts that are caused by careless words. The the first of these, uh, at the beginning of the passage, but set the stage just briefly here. The passage begins by telling us that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day and, and connects that with Saul laying an oath on the people. There's a little difference of opinion about how we should understand that. Were the Israelites hard-pressed because of the Philistines, that they were... Uh, the Philistines had been oppressing them and had been cutting them off from supplies. In that case, it seems like Saul maybe put the oath on them as a way of motivating the troops, as if to say, hey, things are bad, so buck up and push through the pain. You'll get your reward when the clock runs out. Or on the other hand, maybe the people were hard-pressed simply because Saul didn't let them eat. But either way you want to read it, Several things jump 
out that make this a careless and rash oath. Fasting, uh, the men talked about this this weekend actually, is a spiritual discipline of, of going without food for a designated period of time to focus on prayer, to focus on communion with God. In part, to remember as Moses taught the Israelites and as Jesus reminded Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But there's nothing in God's law that tells them to fast during a battle or before a battle. In fact, there's very little in God's law about fasting at all. It is definitely something that the faithful did and do, but it was generally something that was voluntary, not something that was obligatory. Maybe Saul was like the overaggressive football coach who thought that by depriving his players, he could motivate them. But if he was trying to be extra spiritual, then he was just making it up as he went along. But that wouldn't be anything new for Saul, unfortunately. Sadly, there are many religious leaders, or political leaders for that matter, who want to invoke religious language, who will shoot from the hip, or even craft elaborate schemes to make things extra holy or extra spiritual. I think to some degree, it's a, it's a temptation uh, for anyone that's put on a platform uh, that people come to listen to. I, I know there's been times when, when I've said things that I later thought, ah, maybe I went a little too far beyond maybe what I, I feel like I had warrant from Scripture to say. Maybe the things I said weren't wrong, but maybe I didn't feel like I could fully back it up from Scripture. I don't think I've said anything like demanding a wartime fast, but, but this is why we do what we do with, with Bibles open. I'm an authority, but, but I'm under God's Word because God Himself is the authority. And you and I answer to Him together. But be careful when you hear new ideas and new teachings that seem like revolutionary means of understanding prayer or relating to God or relating to Jesus or, or figuring out your personality or, or understanding your politics. Ask yourself if you had 60 seconds to explain this revolutionary idea to the apostles, would they understand what you were saying or would they sort of cock their head to one side and squint their eyes and think that you were crazy? But there's a bigger and there's a more obvious concern in Saul's words because listen to what he says. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's easy, until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Until I'm avenged on my enemies? And we, we might have expected him to say something like, until the Lord is avenged on his enemies. But that's not what Saul said. It's a kind of a tell that we have moved from thinking spiritually to thinking in the flesh, to thinking in merely human categories when we make the things of God into the things of me. God was always the one fighting Israel's battles. The Philistines, because they, first, they worshipped false gods with evil and immoral and unjust practices, were always God's enemies way before they were Israel's enemies. This was about God, and Saul made it about Saul. 
Good leaders lead people and missions. So it should be as much about who and what they lead, or it should be much more about who they lead and what they lead than about themselves. All leaders make mistakes, but, but when a leader makes the job about himself or herself, that's a tell that they're off track. And when they consistently do it, well, that's a leader you probably should not trust. And that's especially true when it comes to spiritual things. It's 1,000% true when it comes to spiritual things. So Saul seems to be consumed with himself. This is not a one-off. If you've been following along in 1 Samuel, you know this is not a one-off for Saul. And he seems to be consumed with himself and be creating policies that have no grounding in God's law, no grounding in Scripture, no grounding in God's Word, and seem to have no benefit for a horribly outmatched and outnumbered 600-man army. At a minimum, it's rash and foolish, but frankly, it also just might be cruel. Well, let's remember what's been going on. As we talked about last week, Jonathan, which is Saul's son, had just abandoned the army, uh, not, not in some sort of AWOL sort of way, but, but to go off on his own on the basis of his faith in God's promises to approach the enemy. And he takes on 20 men. And on the, through, through the working of Jonathan's faith, God then sends the Philistine army into chaos, so much so that the, the Philistine soldiers start attacking one another. And the Israelites see it, they become encouraged, they attack. Israelites that had defected to the Philistines returned to fight for their home country. And Israelites that had fled in fear come back out of hiding and they join the fight. And so with God fighting for them, Israel wins a significant early victory. And so it's apparently in the context of that battle that they're going through the forests of Ephraim and honey is dripping from the trees. Now, if honey production is anything in ancient times like it was in modern times, or like it is in modern times, and it's always a dangerous question, but it might mean it was, was springtime when flowers were abundant. God had promised, though, that the, the land of Canaan, you might remember this phrase, would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And that day, that wasn't just a metaphor. Jonathan apparently doesn't notice that the other soldiers are ignoring this bountiful feast of honey. Uh, and as famished as he is after the battle, he, he reaches out his staff, he takes some honey, and he's rejuvenated. If you've ever had fresh honey from the comb, I hope you have. If you haven't, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Because the sheer delight of it, this rich, sweet energy, is like nothing like the stuff you squeeze from the bear. It's different. I don't know how it's different, but it is so much better. And Jonathan understood that, and, and he's suddenly ready to take on another 20 men. And one of the soldiers near Jonathan tells him what his father, the king, had said. And Jonathan hadn't heard, of course, because he hadn't been with the army. He'd been too busy actually fighting the enemy to hear his father's spiritual mind games. He notices how weak the army is, and he's scandalized by what he sees. Jonathan's words are significant. He says, my father has troubled the land. 
See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? He suggested the troops could have been eating this entire time from the spoils of war. As the Philistines abandoned their camps and their rations and their animals, the Israeli army could have literally eaten anything they wanted. There was no reason to be hungry. But Jonathan loads this comment with theological language when when he says that he had troubled the land. A few hundred years earlier, a well-known, famous story that any Israelite probably would have known, when the Israelites first came into the land, God had given them a miraculous victory over the city of Jericho. I'm sure many of you know this, even from your little kids' Bible story books, the the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down when the Israelites marched around the city seven times and blowing their trumpets. But do you remember the aftermath of that story? The aftermath doesn't get put in your kids' Bibles. You had to kind of read the big version. See, God had demanded that the Israelites destroy everything. Everything. They weren't supposed to take any spoils from that battle at all. Everything was supposed to be dedicated to God. But there was a man, Achan, He saw some valuable items in that city. He tried to hide them for himself. He just, his greed got the better of him. And his lack of faith caused God to look unfavorably upon all of Israel. And so that in their next battle against this much smaller and much weaker city, Israel took a horrible loss. His sins, uh, Achan's sins, were described as bringing trouble on Israel. uh, Achan tried to take the spoils of war that were not his out of greed, and he caused trouble for his entire country. Saul, in his silly selfishness, denied the spoils of war that did rightfully belong to the Israelites and caused trouble for the entire country country. Jonathan is kind of putting his father into the same category as one of the most infamous sinners in Israelite history. Well, God is the one who fights for his people, and our victory ultimately rests in God and God's work God works, as we saw last week, in concert with his people. Just like the faithfulness of the one man, Jonathan, led to a great salvation for Israel at the top of chapter 14, the unfaithful foolishness of the one man, Saul, tamps down that blessing in this passage. Or as Jonathan put it, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Those words are going to prove to be more true than Jonathan even could have known. But this is the first theft that's brought about by Saul's careless words. They stole some of the victory that could have belonged to God's people. Saul's careless words stole some of the victory that could have belonged to God's people. The battle against the Philistines was really a battle against sin, against wickedness, against the evil practices of idolatry, which means it's possible that careless words, our rash words 
of morally dense leaders can cause us to lose something of the victory against sin. Hold that thought. The second theft. Saul may have been foolish. He may have tamped down God's blessing, but God had not abandoned Israel. They do still push the Philistines back to Ajalon, which was about 15 miles west as the crow flies of where the battle started in Michmash. So it's a tremendous success for what seems like the first day of skirmishes. And and there's this little note there in in verse 31, and the people were very faint. Well, go figure. I mean, every evening has come. They're finally able to take advantage of the spoils, and they pounce on it. They kill the animals on the ground. And the reason that's a problem is that Jews were forbidden from eating blood. So you typically would slaughter an animal in some sort of elevated fashion so that the blood could drain out on the ground away from the animal. So it seems like in their hunger and their haste, they simply were killing and butchering animals as fast as they could. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. I kind of love the fact that there's this anonymous they in the Bible. We don't know who told Saul. They did. Someone's. It's hard to know whether Saul was, was just unaware that the troops were doing it or if Saul was unaware that eating blood was against God's law. On the whole, I think it's more likely that Saul didn't know God's law. Saul didn't know God's demands and had to be told them because he's there with the soldiers and everywhere else it seems like Saul is that unaware of God's law. But maybe he just was in his tent. But to his credit, when he's told, he took corrective action. He, he had the troops place a large stone out for slaughtering animals, and he demanded that the work be done there. And there's also a remark that Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Uh, did, Saul, did Saul use this stone for butchering animals to, to double as a place for sacrificing to God, or were these two separate actions? It's not clear. But, but what's a little more clear is that it's a kind of a strange comment to make that this was Saul's first altar that he built to the Lord, just kind of in the middle of this passage, here, now. Other leaders in Israel's past, in their history, built altars to remember the great works of God with some regularity. It just kind of was a a thing they did on big moments. And, And Saul has already seen some pretty big moments, so it's kind of a little unusual that this is the first one now. We might have expected Saul to have built an altar, I don't know, when when God told him that he was going to be king over his people. Or we might have expected Saul to um, build an altar when when God gave him a victory over the kingdom of Ammon. Or we might have thought that Saul would have built an altar himself at Gilgal when he was seeking the Lord's favor. But no, this is his first one. And that seems to be a little unusual and it seems to underscore that Saul, sort of as always, is spiritually a day late and a dollar short. And that really is the case here, isn't it? Because these soldiers who were killing animals 
on the ground and eating them with the blood still in them against God's Old Testament law, which, by the way, is a particular type of law that Christ removed so you can eat your blood sausage if that's your thing. These these soldiers were responsible. Let's be clear. They were responsible for their own actions. If they knew God's law, they were responsible for upholding the law and being faithful to it. But at the same time, they were absolutely famished. They were absolutely exhausted. They were likely desperate for food. And why? Because Saul had given an absolutely stupid and careless order to the troops. And so he set them up for spiritual failure. It seems like the last number of years we've found it very difficult to reconcile personal responsibility with Systemic evil. But there's some people who even hear the word systemic and they have a knee-jerk reaction. Ah, he's woke! You know, and, and other people hear personal responsibility and they, they, they tense up with every fiber in their being wanting to scream, no, it's not their fault. They can't help it. And, and neither of those will do. A truly biblical perspective gives space for both personal responsibility and systemic evil. In fact, I suggest a truly biblical perspective demands it. Even the most anti-woke conservative will tell you that a totalitar- under a totalitarian socialist dictator like Franco or Chavez uh, led to the, the corruption and, and theft because they, they understand that in evil systems, people have tendencies to act corruptly. Each individual, of course, has the freedom and responsibility to choose differently, but it doesn't change the fact that in creating desperate conditions, you're going to cause sinners, and people are sinners, to sin in desperation. And and, and similarly, even the most woke liberal decrying systemic injustices will refuse to hear the excuses of a a January 6th rioter who claimed they are merely caught up in the crowd. They they, they may know and they may understand the power of corrupt movements to shape systems that people live in and breathe in, but deep down, they know those individuals still bear personal responsibility for their actions on that day, right? So even the conservatives understand systemic injustice and even the woke liberals understand personal responsibility. Let's not kid ourselves. Biblically, if we want to be biblically faithful, we have to hold these two things together. It's just too bad those extreme conservatives and those extreme liberals can't be more consistent. But we can in Christ. These two things can coexist. We know they can coexist. The Bible tells us they coexist. And on the day of judgment, each of us will stand before the great judge, Jesus, for the crimes that we as individuals committed. However, there is a stricter judgment on leaders. There's a stricter judgment on leaders, isn't there? James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34 prophesies that God is against the leaders of Israel because their self-centered leadership caused the harm and destruction of his people. Calling the leaders shepherds, God says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. That's a scary thing for God to say he is against you. I could go on with examples, but it's not that listeners, for instance, are not responsible for believing false doctrines. They are. It's not that citizens are not responsible for following evil directions. They are. But there is an understanding that there's a greater weight of responsibility that lies on those in leadership over them. And Saul created a context, a system, if you will, in which evil was highly likely to flourish. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that it did. And that was the second theft. Saul's careless words stole righteousness from the people. Saul's careless words stole righteousness from the people. He made it more difficult for the people to follow the Lord in holiness. And that is a scary thing. The last scene of the passage begins in verse 36. With Saul convinced they should continue to pursue the Philistines until wiped out. Now, if they were to accomplish that, that would be enormous. The Philistines had been a thorn in the Israelites for centuries. Frankly, we, we know from archaeology the Philistines had been a thorn in kind of everyone's side in that whole region for centuries. And we know the Philistines should have been wiped out by this point, long ago. Now, Saul might just mean this particular contingency of Philistines. Maybe he just wanted to wipe out this particular contingency. But remember, it was a large contingency. And at a minimum, that would have gone a very long way to bringing an end to the Philistine reign of terror in the ancient Near East. So this was setting up to be not just a big day, but a historic day. Another anonymous day tells Saul that's a great idea. But the priest suggests inquiring of God. And that sounds spiritual, but I don't think it is. This priest is, as we learned earlier in this chapter from the family of Eli, whose family has already been rejected as being priests before God because of their wickedness. So it's dubious whether he should be even offering advice as a priest in the first place. But besides, God had already told Saul that he was supposed to lead the Israelites in defeating their enemies. And God has already shown up. God is already at work. God is already fighting the battle for them. God is the one causing the Philistines to flee. They they don't need to consult God. God is already screaming from heaven, I've got this, Saul. I even started it without you. 
because your son Jonathan was faithful when you weren't. God was already fighting the battle. Why did Saul need to inquire? And Saul gets no response. Now Saul thinks he gets no response because he thinks there's some sin in the army that God is displeased with. I think it's more likely that God doesn't respond because God has already rejected Saul as king. And go back to Gilgal in chapter 13. God has withdrawn his word from Saul. God has withdrawn revelation from Saul's life. And silence is exactly what Saul should have expected. But Saul decides there must be some specific sin in the camp among the troops that led to God's silence. And he decides that whoever brought it about, well, that person should die no matter what the sin is. No matter who committed it. And he casts lots to determine who has transgressed. And he puts himself and his son in one group. He puts the rest of the troops in another group. He casts lots, and the lot lands for royalty, and the next lot lands for his son, Jonathan. And at this point, we might be asking, did Jonathan sin in what he did? And I think the answer has to be no. And the only, because the only person using the language of sin in this passage is Saul. And he's not exactly a reliable authority at this point on sin and righteousness. In fairness, Saul wanted to know why God didn't answer. And so he cast lights, and, and God let the lot fall on Jonathan. So we might ask, well, well, isn't that God saying that Jonathan was responsible for all this? And I, and I think that's a fair question. But I think that what, what I think is going on here is more of a situation like we have in Romans 1, and we've seen this with Saul already, that once we've abandoned God, and once we have walked away from God in full, God gives us over to our own desires, and God allows our own desires to consume us and destroy us and to corrupt us fully. I know that's not explicitly written in the text. You can, you can take that for what it's worth. You can do with that as you will, but I think that makes the most sense of the data. I think God is allowing the lot to fall on Jonathan because he's allowing Saul's warped mind to destroy him. Well, Saul asks Jonathan what he's done, and Jonathan doesn't hesitate to own up for the only thing he can think of. He ate a little honey. Here I am, I will die. And there's two things we can admire about Jonathan's response. First, he ate, the, he ate the honey off his staff, but that's it. Apparently, once he learned about his father's stupid, silly oath, he honored it. He didn't eat any more honey. Even bad, stupid, corrupt authorities should be honored. Saul did not tell his troops to do anything immoral. Foolish? Yes. 
silly? Yes. Against their best interest? Yes. But immoral? No. Skipping a couple meals was not immoral. And so Jonathan apparently did his best to honor that authority, even though he strongly disagreed with it. There's a lesson for us in that. Maybe especially these years in this heated political climate, there's value in honoring authorities that we strongly disagree with. Maybe even might say a moral obligation to. Second, Jonathan was willing to own the consequences of his actions, however perverse those consequences were. His father was king. His father was immoral and his father was an idiot, but his father was king. And if he must die, he would die. Jonathan accepted his fate. Saul plans to carry out the execution, but the people protest. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And that is, that is striking. Because this is still a relatively small band of soldiers, and they stick up for Jonathan against their king. They directly contradict their king. They protest that it was because of Jonathan's faithful actions that God brought about such a salvation. And when they say that not a hair of his head was going to fall to the ground, they are essentially calling Saul's bluff. They are saying, it's not going to happen if you, none of us is going to participate in an execution. And if you try to do it yourself, Saul, we are going to make sure it doesn't happen. We will prevent you from taking your son's life. So now we have a place. Jonathan was willing to obey a stupid, foolish, silly order from an authority that he disagreed with. But now Saul is wanting to execute someone for not following a foolish order. That is immoral, right? The death penalty is not called for for not following a rash oath that you didn't know about. The death penalty is called for for some things in the Old Testament. That is not among them. And what Saul is about to do is grossly immoral. At that point, they are willing to defy the authority of the king. And they put themselves between the king and his son. Although Jonathan wouldn't defend his own rights to not suffer for the king's idiocy, the people were more than happy to stand up for him. And that's generally a good rule. Be willing to sacrifice your own right, but be willing to stand up for the rights of others. The scriptures say, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And that's an interesting thing because, because a, ransom, a ransom is something paid to secure release. So Jonathan was released from execution, but what was the price paid? And I think 
the price paid must be their own lives. In, in challenging the king, they effectively risked their own lives to save Jonathan's. Because they put themselves at odds with their own king who had some measure of authority to put them to death as well. And they put their own lives on the line to save Jonathan's. As a final note, we read, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. So you can add that back to the first theft. Saul had intended to finish off these Philistines, but in his obsession over his careless words, he dropped the matter and he let the Philistines get away. Did he lose interest? Did he lose heart? Did he get discouraged? Was he frustrated? Was he embarrassed? Who knows? But he lets this massive victory get away. When, when uh, uh, Jonathan said the, the victory against the Philistines is not great this day. Little did he know that they would have an opportunity later that night to pursue the Philistines to the very end and that Saul would just say, change of mind, not going to do it. But here's the third theft. Saul pursued this incredible vendetta against whoever had caused such a great sin in Israel in his mind, and so much so that he decided to kill that person, even if the sin didn't deserve death. And when it turns out that this sin wasn't really a sin at all, but his own son not obeying his careless oath out of sheer ignorance, he was still prepared to pursue an execution. It's so far out of proportion with justice, it's mind-boggling. And on the day of such a great victory, it effectively steals the unity of God's people. It sets the common men, the soldiers, against their leader, the king, in the cause of Jonathan. And maybe it's that. Maybe it's precisely this stolen unity that prevented them from continuing the battle. And so Saul's words stole from them victory, it stole from them righteousness, and it stole from them unity before God. Saul's words mattered. Our words matter. But they don't just matter because of the consequences. They matter because what they say about us. In Matthew 12, 33 through 37, Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people would give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So on the day of judgment, everyone will give an account for every 
careless word they speak. They matter. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, Saul didn't make this oath merely because he was a silly man who said silly random things. The things that came out of his mouth were the product of his heart. If his words were careless, his heart was careless. If his words were rash, his heart was rash. If his commands were cruel and uncaring and inconsiderate, it's because his heart was cruel and uncaring and inconsiderate. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, Saul wasn't just a man with a bunch of crooked behaviors that needed to be straightened out. I think that's how we like to think of ourselves. It's often how we like to think of others as well. I'm just, I'm just a person who's got some, some imperfections. I've got some crooked behaviors. If I, can, if I can stop this habit, if I can stop this, this thing I do, this behavior, I'll be a better man. I'll be a better woman. I'll be a better person. But that's not true. Saul wasn't just a man with a bunch of crooked behaviors that needed to be straightened out. Saul was a man with a crooked heart. And the truth of the matter is that our crooked words come from a crooked heart. We need our crooked hearts straightened. And that's a lot harder than straightening out a few external actions. Behaviors can be modified. There's a lot of people you can go see that can help you modify your behaviors. But hearts... Bad hearts need heart transplants. That's the work of a skilled surgeon. Bad hearts lead inevitably to death. And Saul was spiritually dead. We, like Saul, if we really want to change our words or or any of our behaviors that are crooked, we, we don't need behavior modification, we need a heart transplant. The good news is that God is in the business of heart transplants. See, God isn't looking for worshipers who just change their outward behavior so that they look holy on the outside. He's not interested in that. You've known many people, I'm sure, like Saul, who try to make oaths or to offer sacrifices to look holy on the outside, but whose insides are just all messed up. But God is looking for worshipers who know that their insides are all messed up and want to get better. And for those people, he offers heart transplants. And through that prophet Ezekiel, God speaks of what He will do for His worshipers. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in My statutes and keep My rules and obey them. And they shall be My people and I will be their God. So God changes people from the inside out. He gives them a new heart, a heart that, that wants to obey Him. Not, not that's locked into obeying Him. Not that's behavior modified into obeying Him. Not that's, 
learned new patterns on how to obey him. Not that it's memorized new steps on how to obey him, but a heart that deep down from its very core loves the things of God. Not one that wants to look religious, but a heart that delights in God, that desires to be with God, that desires the things of God. How do you get that transplant? Oh, well, that's something I love to talk with you more about. But it starts with the fact that he sent Jesus to show us that it was possible to have a heart that beats for him. So that those who come to Christ can have Christ's heart implanted in them. So if you're stuck in your crooked behaviors like Saul, if you found your rash words hurting the people around you, know that there is a surgeon who can heal you, not from the outside, but from the inside. And for those who know that already, who are in Christ, our words matter. Maybe you're not in a position like Saul, but maybe you will be. We have levels of authority. We have people that look up to us. We have people that listen to us. Our words matter. And we will give an account before the judge, before that Jesus one day. Let's pray. Father, would you purify our words by purifying our hearts? Make our speech peaceful and peaceable. Make it speech that lifts up and builds up and moves toward blessing and moves toward righteousness and moves toward unity and not the opposite. Teach us to follow your ways. God, for those who need a new heart, oh God, convict them of their need for a new heart. And give us the space to show them, to tell them the good news about how that's possible. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's sing praise to Christ.